In this interview, I speak with Thomas Tunstall. Thomas is an economist, novelist, film critic, and he is the author of The Entropy Model, a novel. So in this interview, we go over his book, some of the themes that he brings up in it. And if you want to learn more about Thomas's work, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find him on Facebook. I'll be putting a link down below to his book where you can buy it. And also a link to his uh, reviews, his movie reviews, film reviews at the Irish Film Critic as well. I really enjoyed this discussion with Thomas. Thank you so much for contacting me. And I really hope you all enjoy this interview with Thomas Tunstall. Thomas, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. Thank you for contacting me. Um, <clears throat> so you have a novel that you uh, that was just released, from what I understand, uh, The Entropy Model. Um, and, you know, it's a really interesting book. There's a lot of different things going on in it. It seems like there's a lot of different storylines that kind of merge together uh, that, are int- that are playing uh, with a lot of really um, relevant ideas, I would say, for the present moment that we're in today. Uh, if you wanted to talk a little bit about what this book is about for you, what themes you explore in it, and kind of give us a basic understanding of what this book is about. That would be great. Sure. Uh, and actually, it, it sort of sprung from research that I do at uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio. <clears throat> that was, uh, you know, in a, in a way, the impetus for it. Um, I don't know how, you know, other people come to works of fiction. Uh, but, it, you know, in my case, I had done a fair amount of work on economic impact and community developments, uh, a lot of it related to uh, hydraulic fracturing and conventional oil and gas development. And in doing those economic impact reports, one of the, the knocks we would get is that, you know, we, we, we talk about the economic impact, but we don't really explore a lot of the other issues that may be associated with it. And, and we certainly look at other research. To date, we really haven't been very well equipped to, to deal with that. But the in the course of talking about that, and for a while I was probably speaking publicly 50 times a year on, on the topic, it got me to thinking about why you can get a doctorate in economics and not be exposed to things like natural capital and ecosystems, ecosystem services. And so I, I started doing research on, on essentially the disconnect between neoclassical economics, which is what is largely practiced today by policymakers such as the Federal Reserve and, uh, and, and, and ecosystem services. And how, uh, I mean, if you do go f- way far back to, to the you know, beginning of economic theory, on or about the time of Adam Smith and and, and there's some work that was done before Adam Smith by the French physiocrats, but in in that early phase of economic theory, there were three components that were key: land, labor, and capital. And toward the end of the uh, 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, partly as a f- function of wanting to quantify economic science, it was a decision was essentially made to treat built capital, which is what we do with natural capital. So, you know, natural capital being things like uh, forests and trees, and we we cut them down and we build houses, and and that's built capital. And for theoretical purposes, neoclassical economists essentially decided they were equivalent. They were the same thing. 
which simplifies the the, the math, uh, even though a lot of it's arcane and obscure. You know, regardless, uh, it it, uh, it 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 makes the, the theory easier to deal with, and so that's really the the mental roadmap that most economists use. And I've seen in in journal articles Nobel Prize winners arguing essentially that yes, built capital and natural capital are equivalent. Um, you know, the the problem with that is you can't eat built capital. And ecosystem services are, are critical either because of uh, you know the, the the things we're we're dumping into them the environmental sink if you will or the rate at which we deplete them and 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 so that was where like I said I I I, I and and I guess the big gap I saw was that you know economists may or may not have an understanding of some of these issues and some you know some do there are, there are folks sort of outside the economic mainstream that that. Uh, believe these issues are critical, but, um, but regardless, policymakers don't seem to be aware of a lot of this stuff in any sort of comprehensive fashion. Uh, even, you know, movie stars, for example, you'll see people talk about, you know, their, their one key issue, like everybody on the planet needs access to clean water. And, and that's certainly true, but they need more than that. Uh, you know, and, and if you uh-huh. look at things from sort of a comprehensive standpoint uh i think that's that's important to try to be able to do that and it's and it's not easy uh, you know these they're complicated issues they're uh a lot of things potentially impacting ecosystem services obviously climate change gets a lot of press but there are things related to that and 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 things unrelated to that both of which potentially threaten ecosystem services so i put together a, a working paper and it's online can be viewed to uh, Social Science Research Network, SSRN, or, uh, you know, I'm happy to send it to anybody that wants to have a look at it. But I submitted it for peer review, and what w- the responses I got back were, were interesting uh, from, from the reviewers, uh, saying essentially, well, these these uh, topics you bring up uh, are all very interesting, but we all we already know all this stuff. And I thought to myself, well, well, that's, that's nice that you know it, uh, you and the 50 or 100 or 500 economists that, that you know, read your journal – but policymakers are obviously, you know, unaware of it. If if we can have the last president saying that the climate change debate is settled, and the current president saying that it's a hoax, from a public policy standpoint, and the fact that there are large numbers of people who will take eagerly take one side of that argument or the other, you know, from a public policy standpoint, we've done a terrible job informing informing people, policymakers, the public at large. And so I happened to be rewatching a movie with a pretty complicated plot called Syriana. I suspect you, mm. you may be yeah. aware of it yeah. by uh, Oscar winner. Uh, he won, uh, Steve Gagan won an Oscar for writing the screenplay for Traffic. Well, he wrote and directed Syriana, and, and it was probably the sixth or seventh time I watched it. One of the reasons being that I see something new each time. It's, it's like I said, it's, it's really a complicated story. And, and I thought, you know, this working paper could, could form the basis of, of a piece of fiction. So the book actually started out as a screenplay using the disconnect between economics and ecosystems as a backdrop. And, you know, from there it evolved in, into a novel uh, and, and some other research I've been doing uh, it was interesting about the uh, settlement of the U S uh, and how it changed along the 98th meridian, roughly. Um, 
because when when the U.S. was initially settled, I, you know, of course, uh, you know, the Spanish came in at uh, Veracruz and and some other uh, southern locations like that. The uh, the British uh, long Jamestown, the East Coast, and moved westward and lifestyles didn't really change, didn't have to change much as people moved west until they reached the 98th meridian uh, in, in Texas and other parts of the Midwest. In fact, the uh, in, in the early days of the United States, the Great Plains was referred to as the Great American Desert. And it wouldn't support the plantation lifestyles that, uh, for example, existed in the Deep South. And so rules and laws changed. And, and it's just interesting how, how big of an impact it had on lifestyles. But it got me to thinking, you know, what if, what if that, that dividing line is a result of uh, the things we're putting into the environmental sink, sink starts to, to shift uh, eastward? And so, again, that, that sort of forms the basis of the backdrop for, for the novel, uh, because uh, in Texas, for example, most of the large cities in Texas are located on or east of, of the 98th Meridian. If you go you know, from Dallas-Fort Worth down to Austin, uh, San Antonio, and then Houston, of course, is well east of, of the 98th Meridian. And the, the western part of Texas is... Is, is pretty arid, uh, you know, fairly dry. There are a lot of lakes and rivers, and the population is a lot more sparse than, than in fact, 70-85% of the population in Texas is located on or east of the 98th meridian. Uh, and yet most of the land mass is, is west. And, again, it was just sort of began as a thought experiment, but, uh, uh, you know, putting together some, some characters and using uh, – uh, you know, the University of Texas as a, as a backdrop and also, uh, you know, bringing in characters from uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, sort of loose, loosely based on, uh, you know, real life people. But, uh, you know, that that's essentially, the, you know, the, 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 like I said, the backdrop for the story, uh, talking about trying to, to take a really complicated topic that doesn't resonate well with large audiences you know, and, and, and not a lot of people read academic papers and, and, and not a lot of people read economic uh, papers. And yet, you know, there are movies that have done that with other topics successfully. Um, one of my favorite examples is The Paper Chase, which does a, a wonderful job sort of highlighting some of the intricacies of law, uh, case, case study in, in law school. And, uh, you know, to a lesser degree, uh, on the basis of sex, the uh, biopic of... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg does some of that as well. In fact, both movies start out with a, a famous uh, uh, case in, in uh, or famous case law uh, example of uh, Hawkins versus McGee. So, uh, so I thought, well, maybe you could do that with economics, and you know, I don't know, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Um, it's uh, uh, it's it's you know, it's it tends to be a dry topic. Uh, uh, most people. Uh, don't really warm up to it, except maybe at a you know pretty high level. You know, a lot of focus on GDP, for example, to the exclusion of other things like measures of happiness and, and other things that probably should be more important to us. And so, um, so anyway, uh, that's and, and and so it's an attempt to to make a potentially dull topic uh, a little more interesting. The way I've I've seen done successfully 
uh, with with other works of, of fiction. And uh, yeah, well, um, yeah, well, when you said that, it reminds me of um, you know talking about complicated, say, economic ideas and fitting it within a narrative, within a film, within something like that, and being able to convey again really kind of dull, complicated, economic, or whatever kind of academic ideas. One example that came to my, my mind is, and I've seen that film Syriana, and I really like that movie, and, and I need to watch it again, because you're bringing it up, and I kind of forgot. But yeah, it was a complicated film, but it had a lot of layers to it. Um, and it's still very relevant to what we're having right now, you know, we're experiencing on a geopolitical, economic level. But um, thinking about that film, The Big Short um, with yep. uh, Christian Bale and uh, Steve Carell, and that of course is about the 2008 financial crisis and the house, the housing bubble, and like how that, how people, real people, were anticipating this and were aware of it before it happened, and they were either trying to make money off of it or they were trying to prepare other people for it. Um, and it was a very entertaining and really engaging film, and um, I really like this idea because. You know, I've talked with a few other authors about their work and where they're trying to kind of unpack um, very, either very difficult, and I mean like emotionally difficult ideas or um, very technical ideas, uh, something that like you're like you're exploring in your book, uh, you're able to do it through narrative, which I think uh, people are more primed to comprehend and understand. Uh, because I think we are a narrative species. We're a storytelling species. Mm-hmm. And that's how we've been conveying information for as long as we've been able to convey information to each other. And uh, so, yeah, it just makes total sense to me that if you're trying to wrestle with an idea, like, how do I get this this concept, these ideas that I'm trying to write in an academic paper out to the public? And like you said, policymakers, people on high levels of uh, you know decision-making uh, in government – uh, they don't. They're not all agreeing on it. They don't even agree on the 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 premise of climate change and whether it's real or not. You know, or, or what we should do about it. Um, and then you get into even more complicated issues like you know, ecological services and how that doesn't really fit very neatly into the neoclassical economic model at all. It doesn't really fit. It wasn't. It wasn't really accounted for in any real way. And that much of the issues that we seem to have today. Um, regarding our, uh, you know, the kind of, I, I see a global collapse of, of ecosystems, right? These sort of life systems that are being impacted by this socioeconomic model that we've been running with for however many decades or hundreds of years at this point. And it doesn't include a very vital, very necessary uh, function that we all rely upon. <laughs> and uh, that to me is like, it just one, it kind of shows the insanity of the culture itself, but it also kind of shows to me that it's just a, that it can be addressed. But we just have to realize that human beings, like you're doing in your book, I mean, we're a narrative species, like I said, we're, we're, we're trying to understand things through story. And so I think it's really a creative thing uh, to see people like you trying to approach these subjects through the, through story. And I think that's great. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting. The, uh, one of the things that went through my mind was, you know, a lot of, you know, documentaries have, have tried to tackle some of these subjects and, mm-hmm. and they have. And, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, one of the best examples, uh, you mentioned the financial crisis. Uh, I watch a lot of documentaries, but, uh, inside job by Charles Ferguson is, mm-hmm. is perhaps the finest documentary, I've, I've ever seen. Of course, it won the Oscar for, for best documentary that year, but uh, it, it 
uh, does a, an excellent job sort of explaining the financial crisis. But it's still a documentary, and, and as such, far fewer people potentially will see those types of films than, than a feature. And so, or, or, you know, people are more likely to read novels than, than, you know, other, uh, you know, other types of, uh, subjects, uh, you know, a pop novel can, can resonate, you know, you know, really, really widely. And, uh, you know, and, and the other thing that was sort of going through my mind was, you know, you know, we've seen, you know, since the formation of modern economies, booms and busts, but never one associated simultaneously with an economic collapse and and that's the other thing and and really the you know sort of the separation of of ecosystems from economics is an artificial separation without ecosystems you have no economy and and so that was another sort of driver for you know for the premise of the book is uh you know what if what if we i mean we've had localized ecosystem collapses you know you can look at easter island or the anasazi um but but those you know were were contained within a relatively finite geography. Uh, but if if we were to have a global financial collapse coupled with a global ecosystem collapse, um, you know, we're, we're, you know we'd be talking about a, a, you know an epical change. And and for me, the more interesting part is less about you know life after the apocalypse, if you will. And there's obviously been a lot of stuff written about that and you know presumed. Uh, scenarios, you know, the road, Cormac McCarthy, you know, Bullet Surprise, but, but, you know, a lot of films, Mad Max and all, you know, have taken that on. To me, the interesting part is the transition. What, you know, number one, what series of events would it take for policymakers to, to actually, you know, believe that, that something's happening, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's not normal. And, uh, and then, you know, what would that transition look like? And, and of course, in the book, it, it's, uh, yeah, I use the term bifurcation, but that's that's uh, you know pulled from the science literature. It's when ecosystems look like they're about to collapse, then they recover, and and they appear to have recovered, and and that can tend to put people in you know bring give them a, a false sense of security. Uh, uh, after which they they could completely collapse altogether, and so you know that was you know because even. You know, if you look at the wildfires in California or the the frequency of hurricanes, the severity of hurricanes, uh, other things, uh, each time something like that happens, you know, you may get folks, particularly, you know, folks in California, a lot of them are saying, well, now I believe in climate change. Um, but I think by and large, most people, a lot of people are still uh, – if, if not skeptical, you know, the timing remains uncertain uh, or, you know, what what the ultimate impacts might be uh, are, are not clear. And again, from a policy standpoint, I, I was I, I sort of wrote from the perspective, you know, what you know, what would have to happen for people to actually, you know, realize that this, you know, that these environmental anomalies are not normal and that, you know, that, the uh, you yeah. know you know, what we're doing is causing him. So, well, so. well, what would you say in, in through your work? I mean, how would you, uh, well, what would it take for policymakers well, to those figure are that the, out? The sort of the, um, uh, scenarios that, that are, that populate the book. But I mean, um, you know, we talk about biodiversity, for example, a lot and, and a lot of people, it, it, it tends to be somewhat abstract in that, uh, 
you know, going back through through all of history, there have been, you know, mass extinctions. And, and even just in the, the course when the weather or climate is relatively stable, you still get a you know, fair number of species uh, that go extinct that, you know, have nothing to do, had nothing to do with the influence of humanity on it. Mm-hmm. But but obviously that that rate is increasing and so people a lot of people still s- tend to, to wonder well you know what uh, you know does it really matter that much you know we've seen extinctions before and so the, one of the scenarios I, I i posit is that uh if what lack of biodiversity could imply is that only the the hardiest uh and and you know fast replicating species might be the ones likely to survive. So imagine a planet populated with, with the, uh, an outsized number of crows and cockroaches and, you know, uh, skunks, you know, really resilient animals that are, uh, you know, relatively impervious to, to human encroachment on, on, uh, uh, you know, forested landscape and things like that. So, uh, and, and, and that's, the sort of tangible kind of icky scenario that, uh, you know, I think people could have, would have an easier time relating to is that, you know, if, they, if that's, if those are the sort of creatures that survive. And the other example I use uh, is tardigrades just kind of for fun, partly because tardigrades, uh, I don't know how, how quickly, quickly they replicate. And that's usually why species are, you know, are more resilient is, is they, they replicate quickly and they can mute as a result, they have more mutations. And so they, they have a better chance of adapting. Tardigrades are impervious to like anything. They can exist in outer space. So, um, that's the reason they're resilient. And, and so again, it's sort of fun to talk about in, in the book, but, um, but that's, you know, that is an attempt to sort of bring things home or, or, you know, the fact that I, I opened the book with a, you know, clear air lightning strike out in the middle of West Texas. Um, which is not as far-fetched as it sounds. If you go back to the Dust Bowl, when, when uh, the Great Plains experienced its first really severe drought, absolutely as a re- result of man, man-made activity, you know, plowing up the uh, ecologically sensitive sod uh, and, and making uh, the landscape more arid than, than it needed to be. And, and, you know, there are stories of, uh, you know, people shaking hands and being, you know, literally, uh, uh, you know, creating a spark and, and, and you know, both of them repelled and, you know, landing on the ground. There was so much static electricity in the air at the time. So, um, so again, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, it, it sort of posits that it, it will take extreme circumstances like that before, or it may take those types of circumstances before people pay attention. Maybe if you, you sort of fictionalize and dramatize it, that, people will, you know, be able to kind of look around the corner before it's too late. Yeah. I always thought it was interesting that, <clears throat> that you can kind of get a good reading of, of, I guess, where the culture's at by just looking at what's in the, you know, popular media. I, I can't remember how many times I've seen movies come out recently where either there's kind of a, a theme of, of course, apocalyptic, like end of the world type type scenario um, that's always apparent, but there's even a things that are like, I was watching this cheesy movie the other day, like a few weeks ago. I can't remember the name of it. It was a really bad movie. My friends <laughs> wanted to watch. So I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll watch this movie. But some, it just threw me off. I was kind of zoning out. And at some point during the movie, there was like, 
we know we only have a few years left before climate change kills off humanity. We have to do something about it. And then the evil genius, of course, steps in to try to, you know, do some evil scheme and everybody has to stop him from doing it. Um, I can't remember how many movies I've seen where there are these themes that are running through it where these these things are dropped like it's it's sort of said as a as if uh, like it's just an obvious statement like oh climate change is going to bring about the end of humanity or it's going to cause the collapse of civilization or something right there's always some and whether you think that's extreme or not there is this general sense that people have that we're on the edge of something we don't know exactly what it's going to look like what it's going to be like but we're on the edge of something and i i kind of have this feeling like with media, with movies, stories, and all of that, it could do two things. One, it kind of makes us, yes, it primes us psychologically for this kind of collapse scenario. <clears throat> but I also feel like it kind of, because it abstracts it so much, it turns it into this, like, like I think people's idea of the apocalypse is like a zombie apocalypse. They just imagine there's going to be some virus outbreak or something. And then I don't think people actually know what a real collapse looks like. The only people that I've talked to in real life that know what a collapse really looks like are refugees. There are people in my in my community who are from like Bosnia. I have this woman I've interviewed a couple times who's from our uh, she's Armenian, but she was from Azerbaijan and she witnessed after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was this pogroms that were targeting her and her her people and her family had to escape. So, anyway, my point is is that there's these people that I've met in real life that are like collapse looks nothing like that you know um there it's 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 messy and disturbing and of course incredibly violent oftentimes because people are fighting for things um but then again at the same time i've talked to these same people and they say well you'll be absolutely surprised by how generous people can be as well people you don't even know that are absolutely generous they'll give you their home to stay in until you're ready to leave um i've had that too so Anyway, I guess my, my I guess my thing is is I have a bit of a pull within myself where I think like is fiction, is, star- is storytelling actually preparing us for what's coming, and I and I get pulled depending on what it is. I get pulled in either direction of like this is preparing us some in some sort of psychological or emotional way, or it's just sort of abstracting it and turning it into like a, a you know a big production film that sort of distances us from the reality of where we are actually in the real world, you know, like what, what's actually unfolding right now in the real world it almost feels like theatrical or cinematic. And it's very peculiar. Uh, and I never could get my, I never can really figure out which I prefer more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you're right. The, uh, uh, and, and, and those are excellent examples. I mean, if you look at the uh, uh, Syrian civil war, or the uh, Somali pirates, both of those are examples of, of, of events that have sprung from in environmental related occurrences. And, and, uh, but I, yeah, I think you'll, you'll, it will bring out the, the best and the worst in people. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, if, if you, if you care to look, there are glimpses and hints of, of uh, here in the U S of what that might look like. Uh, one of the things that hit home for me was, uh, in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Harvey a few years ago, the uh, refineries along the Gulf Coast uh, shut down for a couple of days to uh, just as a precaution. Uh, and the 
I guess folks on the it was, it was I, I, probably across the media, maybe sparked by an announcement from the governor's office. But uh, it was something to the effect of, uh, "Now don't worry, there's there's plenty of gasoline." And almost immediately, there were gas lines reminiscent of of the 1970s. Uh, certainly here in San Antonio, but I actually uh, drove up to Dallas that weekend, and from San Antonio to Dallas, gas stations either had lengthy lines of people trying to fill up that last top off their tank, whatever, uh, or closed all together because they ran out, run out of gas. And there was no shortage. It was, it was, you know, for, yeah, for a couple of days, the supply chains were, were, you know, challenged somewhat, uh, but people panicked and, and, you know, they were, and, and, and it was exacerbated by, by, you know, idiots with, uh, what are called, I don't know if you know what an IBC tank is, but it's, it's one of those, you see, uh, see them carrying around, uh, uh, you know, pesticides or, or liquid oh, fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. You know, they hold uh, something like, uh, I don't know, 200, 300 gallons. And and people stuck those in the back of their trucks and were filling those up. So not only were they, you know, filling up their cars, but they were, you know, filling up, you know, it, it, anything that they, you know, uh, plastic buckets with, with trash bags. Or, uh, and I, I literally, I, I saw photos of this, uh, of, of people doing this, uh, which is, you know, really stupid for a couple of reasons. One, gasoline doesn't store well. It tends to absorb the moisture and impurities from the atmosphere. So, you know, you need to use it, you know, you know, reasonably, uh, reasonably soon after you purchase it. And, and, and it's just, it's flammable as hell. It's dangerous. Uh, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, you certainly wouldn't want to store it anywhere near your house, uh, because of potential for fire and explosions. But so, Again, I'm sure there would be examples of, of you know, people, uh, you know, uh, seeing the good side of humanity. I, I certainly got a glimpse of, of, you know, the more venal aspects of it. You know, I mean, another example occurred in Corpus Christi. They had a uh, uh, somehow uh, a refinery uh, water. There was a concern that, that uh some of the refiner, refineries' fluids had backed up into the the water supply, and and so the city alerted people to to avoid you know for a couple of days drinking you know the water from faucets, and so there was a run on uh, grocery stores for for bottles of water. People with with uh, shopping carts loaded top to bottom with with uh, with drinking water as if again it were, were the apocalypse. And then this was just a, again, a, a, you know, clearly a, a temporary shortage, but uh, you know, uh, people uh, essentially acting with, with no regard for, you know, other, other folks in the community, uh, you know, as if every man for himself. And so, you know, those types of scenarios really concern me because uh, like I said, that what would happen in, in an, a bona fide crisis um, if this is what people do in sort of a really temporary, uh, you know, set of circumstances. Yeah, it just, it's, I haven't experienced that, you know, I haven't been in a, a scenario like that. Um, but I, I've definitely seen, you know, news footage and things of what happens. And, and yeah, you know, you're talking about those, I don't know if it's the majority of people, and I'm sure you could tell me this, but I don't think it's the majority of the people that are going to act like that. It's, it's probably some very... Uh, you know, certain groups or certain smaller group of, of people that are, are prone to making it more chaotic 
than it needs to be. Um, I feel like that's the case in general. Like when I think about, you know, like social media or something, there's always this loud, vocal, small minority of people that tend to get the most attention. Uh, I feel like that's probably the case in, say, a collapse scenario where people are running out out of access to certain resources and they're like, well, I need to get as much as I possibly can right now, regardless of, you know, it, it, in fact, another example, I mean, this is totally ridiculous, and, and I totally think, and I really do think that this fits within the the context of our culture, I think. Uh, not completely, I know that this is playing on much deeper things, but I do feel that, that because we have this, this sense that it's like all for, we don't have the sense of community. We don't have the sense that people are going to, you know, take care of each other. We have the sense that, oh, this is my home. This is my land. This is my family. I have to protect it at any costs. Um, I think that mentality is very prominent in the United States, especially. Um, but I imagine it's it's in other places as well. But um, yeah, I, I, I feel like within this sort of uh, the scarcity mindset that people have, like we don't have enough of something. So we have to hoard as much water bottles as we possibly can. We don't have enough uh, food. So we have to go to the grocery store. We have to, you know, we have to go to the gas, uh, the gas, uh, gas station to get as much gasoline as possible. Um, it creates chaos. People aren't, uh, we don't have the, uh, the framework, I guess, or the, the, the sort of safety net of a community to, to, to sort of mitigate some of those more disturbing and um, complicating and chaotic elements of human beings. Um, That's just my general sense of it. So I feel like if people are, like you're writing this book, and I know that people are are coming into an awareness that, okay, we're coming up against certain ecological limits on this planet right now, um, we need to start uh, building some sort of, we need to be start building community. We need to be a little more prepared and have connections with others, um, and build something that's actually much more sustainable, much more flexible, um, and is able to to weather through much more difficult circumstances than probably what we've even experienced up to this point. You talked about a very temporary shortage of supplies and people acting the way that they have been imagining what will happen when the water really stops you know the fresh water is you can't get that clean water anymore um you know access to fossil fuels will be very limited if if altogether non-existent um things like that you know people are going to start getting very nervous (laughs) and yeah and and i just try to imagine like well then what you know people need to be prepared for that that outcome because it's coming i think in some form or another whether it's rapid or whether it happens more slowly um it's it's a process that i think we're we're experiencing right now yeah yeah and i, I think it, it remains unclear um i probably should should just briefly explain the title of the novel yeah uh, yeah that'd be great the entropy model but basically it's a reference to and, and again it derives from uh, a, a, a minority of school of thought with regard to economic theory but uh, basically, <coughs> excuse me. The uh, when we use energy, for example, or, or or even you know eat food, we're taking products of ecosystem services that contain high entropy, uh, using the energy and uh, I'm sorry, uh, low low entropy and and uh, using them and uh, and then when they're depleted, they they have high higher entropy, uh, which is a measure of disorder. And so, uh, it's those higher entropy products that we are 
for example, filling up the environmental sink with, uh, and um, and faster than ecosystem services are able to re- replenish themselves. I mean, uh, if you look at the pressure on, you know, fish stocks uh, or uh, you know, f- forested area, uh, you know, just just the the byproducts that as a result of our activity that we're emitting these high entropy products, uh, we are, you know, threatening ecosystem services and, and essentially, like I said, without ecosystem services, you, you, you have no working economy. And in, in again, it's, it's an attempt, excuse me, an attempt to take a series of abstract concepts and, and bring them together in, in a more tangible way to, you know, hopefully resonate with a, a larger audience because the prospect of writing a, a peer-reviewed paper for, you know, 200 academics who will probably only share it with, you know, or have discussions about it with those 200 academics was, was too, uh, too horrible to contemplate. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think, uh, if, uh, you know, my, my PhD is, is it's, uh, I mean, I'm an economist, but the, the formal title is political economy. And, and that implies that, that, you know, your research work is going to have an impact on public policy. And that's certainly, you know, the research that, that uh, we do in the shop uh, that I'm at at UT San Antonio is, is very much applied in nature. And, uh, you know, it's intended to be read by policymakers and, and uh, practitioners. And as opposed, you know, it's great if academics read it too. But, but the target audience is, you know, it's intended to be relevant. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with this, this novel is, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly plenty of stories about uh, action heroes and, and uh, galactic empires. Uh, in fact, I, I, Moonlight is a, a film critic. Uh, and I, you know, to write reviews about some of those types of things. But when I see a film like uh, First, Revo- First Reformed uh, by Paul Schrader starring Ethan Hawke, that actually does try to... to touch on some important social issues it's uh, it's 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 a refreshing experience uh you know it doesn't you know get you know as large an audience as, as star wars or or the marvel cart cart you know comic characters but uh but it still you know uh touches people and 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 and, and resonates with a larger audience than than uh, an academic paper would or even like i said even a documentary really um uh, with you know, with few exceptions. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think what you're doing is great. I think the fact that yeah, you're you're you're. I mean, I, I feel like being an academic. I, I don't know what that's like. Of course, I'm not an academic, but as somebody who's very interested in academic subjects and speaks with academics, um, I do find it really fascinating that like, okay, you understand that that you're when you write an academic paper, it's a very limited audience. You're you're. <laughs> trying to convey those ideas it's just gonna it's gonna basically what a few hundred people maybe will have access to that and be interested in it but again like i said earlier narrative is such an important part of being a human being and being able to convey that information through narrative i think is really fascinating and and like you talk about you know with other films that have come out that are trying to explore really difficult and heavy and complicated issues uh through the medium of film i'm incredibly fascinated by that and so i I think it makes sense that you know, considering you're a you're an academic, but you're also a film critic. You're you're in both worlds. You understand the connections between the two. You can see how both can how uh, how writing a film script or or writing a book 
uh, can convey those ideas to a wider audience. And I think we need that right now. I think people need to be able to process this uh, information and these ideas in some form or another. And so I think that's what you're doing, and I think that's great. Um, Thomas, I would just ask if people want to learn more about your work, um, about your book, The Entropy Model, a novel, um, if people want to find out about that, uh, where's the best place for people to look? The, the book is only available on uh, Amazon, so it's it's uh, both in Kindle and uh, uh, print formats. Uh, an audio version will be coming out uh, sometime in April uh, because I've gotten a few several requests for for audiobook format, um, and that's clearly a uh, a growing uh, medium in which people. Uh, "Quote unquote," read uh, or experience uh, novels now. Uh, so, and then, and of course, the research. Uh, you know, again, I'm at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, if you Google that and 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 my name, uh, it'll uh, you'll, you'll find uh, you know plenty of hits and um, you know ways to contact me and and uh, you know any of the research. I'm certainly happy to to share. Um, like I said, the, the working paper is is on a website, but uh, I've, I've sent out you know several. Uh, you know, PDF versions of it as well. So, um, um, you know, it's, I think these are, you know, important subjects and, and, and it's a shame that, that they aren't presented in a more accessible fashion. In fact, I sometimes think economists uh, find some sort of perverse pride in, in, you know, being one of the few people that can actually understand some of the, uh, the abstract math and the equations. And, and, uh, uh, that's unfortunate, you know, the sort of the black box, uh, intimidates people uh, perhaps more than it should and, and I think in a lot of cases keeps us from questioning uh, stuff that uh, is, is is simply accepted as doctrine yeah yeah it's uh, I think there's something wrong if people are uh, approaching it in that way you know obviously there are ideas that are complicated that need to be there's a certain kind of <clears throat> you know language or lingo that's used to describe it but if you can't then translate that into a language or a format that is more accessible to people that are outside of that, um, you know, out of that type of education or that, uh, that framework, you know, then, you know, it's kind of useless because then it's just a bunch of group, just like basically a book, you know, group of people just sitting around talking about things that, that isn't really going to benefit anyone except themselves maybe. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's strange. I, I've, I, I always get excited when I see really groundbreaking research or, um, you know, some sort of scientific information that gets uh, circulated in the media, which of course is, I think, either a good thing or bad thing. Sometimes, a lot of times I say, uh, the information gets misinterpreted and then that misinterpreted information gets spread around. And then the scientists that were actually doing the paper or the academic or whoever is researching it is like, actually, you missed some really key points in this. You said the exact opposite of what I was trying to get at. But I've also seen the other way too, where people that are like, I'm really happy this is getting out there. I like, for instance, I talked with a guy a few weeks back named Alexander Koch. And he, uh, he's an academic in, um, I'm trying to think. Oh, uh, University College London, I think is the name of it. He he was one of four people who came up with a paper um, that explored the population, uh, the the population numbers in the Americas before Columbus arrived, and they settled around 60 million, and they said about 90 percent 
of those people in the Americas, the indigenous populations, died as a result of contact, first from disease and then, of course, the colonization. They were able to figure that out, and they were also able to look at the climate record. They could see that the, the climate shifted really dramatically as a result of this. There was like a 0.15C degree drop in global temperature during the, the, the Little Ice Age, uh, during that century when there was a massive loss of, of human life. I mean, this is like, I think in the grand scope of things, like 10% of the global population died within a century. And they were able to figure that out. They, they found all these different things, you know, and put all this information together and presented it in a paper and it got out in the media and I saw it everywhere. And so, so it's just, again, just another example of how really groundbreaking research can seep its way into the, the public consciousness in some form or another. And some of the ways that we can do that, of course, is just through storytelling and through movies and novels and and uh, all of that. So I, I think that that's a really great way to convey information as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think that uh, that's certainly the format people most readily gravitate towards. I mean, we've been storytellers as a species for, you know, the 200,000 years of, of our existence, mostly as hunter-gatherers and, and you know, through the oral tradition. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we, 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 we love stories and um, I... I uh, I thought I would 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 give it a shot because, uh, uh, you know, that's that's it, when you're trying to write a work of fiction. One of the things, and particularly, uh, you know, in, in in the film format, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about a film is if it shows me or tells me something new, mm-hmm. and that's what I felt like I had. Uh, you know, as the basis is, you know, I've I've got. A way of, of perhaps looking at the world that uh, uh, you know has not been widely shared to date, and and so you know maybe maybe that will pique the interest of some folks. Yeah, well, I'll be certainly linking people to the book uh, to the Amazon link, so people can either buy an ebook or the physical copy of it. I'm excited to see if a audio book comes out of this as well, um, and I'm excited to see what other work that you come up with, and. Um, is there anything else that's going on? I, I know that you're a film critic, so I could I could link people to to where you uh, where you publish that. Um, are there any other resources or any other places that you'd like to direct people towards? Any social media or anything like that? Well, I'm uh, you know pretty readily accessible on uh, LinkedIn and uh, you know Facebook. Uh, the uh, uh, and and you know my contact information is there. Obviously, at uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, you know, I've, uh, uh, you know, we've got, uh, a website at the Institute for Economic Development that has all of the research, for example, that, that we've done. Um, and it, you know, in, in, in that sense, it covers really a variety of topics. This, this sort of departure into the disconnect between economics and ecosystems is, is, is something that, uh, you know, a lot of our research tends to be sponsored. This is something I, I've just done on my own because I, I felt like it was important, and and it wasn't, uh, you know, being being explored in such a way that it, that it resonates in the public policy arena. I mean, I, there you know there are journals that address this, but again, I, I just don't get the sense that uh, they're reaching uh, the, the you know the the audience that we need to try to you know get in contact with yeah right well uh thomas thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it 
Yeah, my pleasure, Patrick. I enjoyed it very much.